Welcome to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia uh, podcast series, podcasting here from the soggy Sydney, uh, where we have uh, quite a lot of flooding at the moment. Uh, my name is Stephen Cow. Um, I'm a homegrown medical oncologist here in Sydney, uh, trending Sydney, and uh, currently practicing in Sydney at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. This TOGA podcast focuses on small cell lung cancer, uh, and as we all know, it's a type of lung cancer with the poorest prognosis of any lung cancer that we have. Small cell lung cancer patients make up about 13% of all new lung cancer diagnoses, um, and we also know that it is characterized by early and rapid spread with only very small progress in its treatment over the last decades. What we also know is that immunotherapy continues to radically change the way we treat many types of lung cancer, uh, without exception in small cell lung cancer. And today, we really wanted to explore what this treatment means for small cell lung cancer patients and the practical implications of using immunotherapies in the clinic. In this podcast, uh, I'm very privileged to have two of my colleagues joining me. First of all, I have a smarter Stephen here, Professor Stephen Liu, uh, who's the Director of Thoracic Oncology and Director of Developmental Therapeutics at the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center of Georgetown University. And also joining us, uh, we have Dr. Rebecca Tay, a medical oncologist from Royal Hobart Hospital uh, in the state of Tasmania having recently completed a clinical research fellowship uh, at the Christie NHS Foundation Trust in Manchester. So thank you very much for joining us today. And also, I want to uh, take this opportunity to thank uh, Roche for sponsoring uh, this podcast. So I'm going to Stephen and Rebecca to introduce themselves um, and start this podcast. Yeah, good, good morning here. Um, uh, nice to to see you and thank you for having me. Uh, pleasure to, to see you virtually at least and, and pleasure to be here with you uh, to talk about small cell. I think this is an area where, where I've focused a lot of my research career um, and fortunately we have seen some advances and hopefully more to come. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so as I said, Rebecca, my main clinical interest is lung cancer after um, working in Manchester for two years where the rates of lung cancer are extremely high. I've come back to work as I think what would be classed as a community oncologist and certainly um, our rates of smoking locally are exceptionally high and that probably mirrors the population that I primarily treat in my clinic. So it's prob you're probably too young to comment on this Rebecca but have you seen a uh, changing kind of epidemiology of small cell um, where you practice? I think certainly uh, I think I'm that young, but thank you for the compliment, Stephen. It's nice. Um, a reduction in the incidence of small cell lung cancer overall probably mirrors better public health information and reduced smoking rates. Like I would certainly see a lot more non-small cell lung cancer patients than small cell patients. And we've certainly seen the, I guess, progressive lag in advances in small cell, um, particularly with the um, spate of targeted therapies and immunotherapy combinations that we've seen with non-small cancer treatments. So we have to ensure that, um, you know, these, our patients don't lag behind. I think there's a, a good point to that. There's a tremendous variation and that link between smoking is so strong that, you know, in the U.S. where, where I practice, there are parts of the country in the tobacco belt where tobacco is grown, where small cell lung cancer may represent one in four cancers. And then you may move out to Southern California. Where, where smoking is actually quite uncommon and people might see more EGFR transformant 
to, to small cell than de novo small cell. So uh, I think the incidence is going down as smoking incidence decreases, but there are parts of the country uh, in, in certain parts of Asia, parts of Eastern Europe where you know, smoking still on, on the rise. Uh, and I think there's tremendous variation uh, in, in, in the incidence uh, and, and those patterns I think will, will continue to evolve. Yeah, there's no doubt that small cell um, is going to remain a very important uh, disease for uh, researchers to focus on. And I guess uh, it's quite uh, disappointing over the last few decades that uh, progress has been very slow. And I think it's not through the lack of trying, is it? Uh, there's been many, many negative phase three studies uh, until very recently. And I think Stephen, you led those uh, practice changing uh, studies, namely um, immunotherapy strategies for small cell. Would you like to tell us about that? Well, yeah, I remember it very well. It was, I think that many oncologists, especially those focused on lung cancer, come out of fellowship and they're very sort of energetic, motivated, and you feel like you've, you were so close to really taking that next big step in small cell lung cancer. Right? I mean, when we give chemotherapy, initially it's actually quite satisfying. Someone comes in very symptomatic, we give chemotherapy and they feel much better very quickly. And, and we feel like we're very close to something much more significant. And I think that as, as we get a bit older and have more experience, uh, we, we, you know, we start to, to recognize that that relapse really is the, the main part of small cell lung cancer and why it's been so difficult to make advances. Uh, at a fellowship um, early in my career, I remember writing this protocol as an investigator-initiated study with Leora Horn uh, at Vanderbilt at the time. And two of us worked on this protocol probably in 2014, 2015, when immunotherapy was just coming out. Um, and the thought here was small cell lung cancer, uh, smoking-related cancer has a lot of neoantigens, presumably. Uh, and there seems to be a strong link between our immune system and small cell. You know, those with perineoplastic syndromes, which are immune-mediated, seem to have better prognosis in some retrospective series. So we thought this was really set up for, for big success with immunotherapy. And you know, that, that's why we worked on designing this study. It evolved from an investigator-initiated trial to really a registrational global phase three study. But um, Power 133 was a, a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial for patients with extensive stage small cell. Everyone got standard carbotoposide and then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive a tezolizumab, which is a pd one inhibitor, or placebo that was given with chemo and then maintenance a tes or placebo until progression. Uh, and we um, finally presented this data uh, in the, the World Lung Meeting in Toronto in September 2018, showing that the addition of a tezo did improve survival. It improved progression-free survival. It didn't have a, a worrisome safety signal, but this was really the first study in 30 or 40 years to, to make some dent in OS. Uh, we updated these data in JCO 2021, uh, and what we saw with about two years of follow-up was the median survival improved from 10 months to 12 months. That's a hazard ratio of 0.76. An 18-month survival rate was 21% with chemo, was 34% with chemo plus a tezo. So uh, a significant improvement, uh, acknowledging that it's maybe not, not the degree of improvement that we had wanted when we had initially designed the study, but it was a very important first step. And certainly the first study in about 20, 30 years to show a significant overall survival benefit. Rebecca, when we saw those, those initial data, I, I remember getting that call, reviewing the data the very first time with the steering committee and there's sort of a range of ages on that steering committee and the more senior folks of that steering committee were, were very, very excited. And I remember my initial reaction was a little bit of disappointment 
because I had frankly thought that it would be a hazard ratio of 0.1, that it would be 100% to your survival rates. Um, but as, as sort of you become more seasoned, you realize that there are many studies built on solid science that just made no difference in survival. And this really showing, you know, that 13% uh, improvement in 18 month survival rate, uh, there's a subset of patients that are really getting long-term benefit here. So I think it is uh, an important first step, hopefully the first of many. So that's a very interesting uh, uh, perspective. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us were a little bit disappointed with the prolongation of survival with addition of a TESO. Um, like you said, we all expected it to be a little bit longer, uh, given that it's a smoking-related uh, disease and that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, increased in your antigens. Why do you think it wasn't as good? So, you know, I... I... I think I've changed my, my phrasing a little bit as time has gone on and maybe expectation for the, these dramatic improvements isn't the right word. Maybe it was hope. Um, we had hoped for something much, much better, but this is really a tough disease to study, a tough disease to treat. And as we're moving forward and understanding this biology a bit more, we understand that small cell really is made up of many different types uh, of lung cancer. There are many subtypes as we see in non-small cell. We just have to recognize them and define them a bit differently. It's not genomics. It's not driver mutations. And there are a lot of other differences. And since we're just really at the precipice of, of defining that biology, to have this an all-comer empiric approach make any dent, I think, is, is quite an accomplishment. Uh, small cell lung cancer, I think, among all the cancers that we treat is you know, one of you know, is one of the most immunosuppressive microenvironments. And overcoming that will continue to be a challenge. Chemotherapy is one strategy. There are many others. And we need to find a way to personalize that. This would be like delivering osimertinib or electinib to an all-comer population where you'll see a, a substantial benefit in a, a small subset, but overall the, the benefit would be quite, quite small. And in small cell lung cancer, we see that there is a subset of patients that do derive long-term survival benefit. And it's important we give those patients the opportunity to get that benefit. But uh, there are a lot of patients that simply don't derive that benefit. It's just that as I'm sitting with the patient in my clinic, I can't tell where they're going to fit, if they're going to be that long-term survivor or not. And you know, that's really why we need, we need a biomarker and why we've been trying to find one, but it's, it is challenging. It's challenging. And I think uh, we're quite fortunate here in Australia that uh, atezolizumab is now reimbursed and has been reimbursed over the last year. So we uh, have the opportunity to use that in all of our small cell lung cancer patients. So I think that's been quite exciting. Um, and I guess, Rebecca, what, what are the challenges that you have found in terms of using um, uh, this treatment uh, in this particular uh, groups of patients? So certainly in Australia, because of our, the way that atezolizumab is listed on the PBS. Um, so it's listed for extensive stage small cell lung cancer, those with a performance status of ECOG 0 to 1, it must be used as initial treatment where the condition has been previously untreated, is the wording, um, and it must be used in combination with platinum antitoposide. So given the quite aggressive nature of small cell lung cancer, often patients do come to us very symptomatic, as you mentioned before, Stephen. Um, and so starting treatment quickly is imperative. And often we may be limited by actual day chemo unit chairs to deliver the treatment. So often we may need to admit patients as an inpatient, start their chemotherapy. And in order to deliver the 
atezolizumab um, with the first cycle at the end of their three days delivered the atezolizumab on discharge so that we can meet the reimbursement criteria. Would that be one of your approaches, Stephen, as well? I think that uh, you bring up a good point and a lot of our patients are diagnosed as an inpatient. If I were held to those same strict criteria, I would not be giving nearly as much immunotherapy as I am now, because I think performance status zero to one really is a, a smaller subset. And the real world, I think performance status two is, is quite common um, because this cancer is so aggressive, so fast. I think the cancer itself really brings down the performance status. And that's why you can see sort of dramatic improvement with chemotherapy. Um, so I, I am a little bit looser and I do deliver immunotherapy to PS2, maybe even PS3. In the hospital, we are limited to some of those same restrictions, though, and giving uh, an immunotherapy agent like atezolizumab as an inpatient would have some financial consequences to my institution. It's not something that we routinely do. In those instances, if I've got someone that's quite ill, I will give chemotherapy as an inpatient. I will expect an improvement and uh, discharge that patient, and then often sort of jump in with atezolizumab at cycle two as an outpatient. Is that something that you're allowed to do in, in Australia? I think strictly speaking with the criteria, it should be with the first cycle, but I think you, I think you might find some variation around the place. Stephen, what do you do in, at Lifehouse? Uh, look, I, um, it's difficult to give immunotherapy as an inpatient just because of the financial constraint uh, and the PBS reimbursement criteria because I tend to give them chemotherapy as an inpatient and typically then get them home uh, on the day that they go home I uh, give them a tisalizumab. Um, I have to say I, I mean I'm not convinced that uh, addition of a tisalizumab really add that much toxicity so I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried about uh, the toxicity side of things but it, I'm really doing that to fulfill the, um, the PBS criteria. It's it's tough now because it's really the only opportunity to give immunotherapy is, is right up front. You know, we saw maintenance therapy after immunotherapy and checkmate 451 that was negative, no different from placebo. We saw second line, nivolumab versus topotecan, no better than topotecan. And in the US, we had the FDA's accelerated approval of pembrolizumab and nivolumab as monotherapy uh, in the third line setting. But uh, both of those indications were withdrawn in 2021, after the confirmatory studies for both those agents were negative for survival. So the only approved indications for immunotherapy really are upfront in small cell. And you know, in the US, we have approval of atezolizumab based on Empower 133 as the first. And then about a year later, we had, had Caspian uh, given um, uh, with, with Dervalimab. Is Caspian a regimen that's available to you in Australia? I think there's an option in terms of four weekly dosing with Dervalimab. So that might be more attractive. Um, for some patients to uh, reduce hospital visits? Oh, we have the four weekly uh, dosing of atezolizumab approved in the US as well. Can I ask, while I have you both here, what's your approach to PCI in patients who say have had a good response following their induction chemotherapy? Is that something you routinely deliver? Is that something you send, you refer to a radiation oncologist for an opinion? Uh, look, I, I think, as you know, um, PCI is slightly controversial in that um, uh, 
the Japanese study of uh, uh, regular MRI surveillance uh, demonstrated that PCI uh, in those that have no cerebral metastasis on MRI uh, showed a worse survival. Um, and I guess that's kind of reflected on the um, uptake of PCI in the Empower 133 and also in Caspian study. Uh, it really was the minority. I think it was about 15% of people received PCI uh, in the entire population. So I think that's probably a reflection of uh, what uh, the oncologist thought of it. Uh, but certainly on the other hand, uh, I don't think it adds toxicity. So um, I think it's safe to deliver based on the trial data. Um, I have to say personally, I think I, I probably favour uh, the MRI surveillance uh, in the era of, um, uh, of the current immunotherapy um, combination. Um, and that what I tend to do. I don't know what Stephen uh, does, um, but that's what I tend to do. Sure. I, I can tell you at Georgetown, we really don't do a lot of PCI anymore. And I will go a little farther with that. And I, I tend not to give it for limited stage either. Um, I think that Takahashi paper in 2017 really called into question the validity of the practice. And, uh, you know, while there's no toxicity in the short term, that, that's true. We didn't see a difference in signal. Um, it's really the long-term toxicity. And you know, some of the patients I've had with limited stage, you know, the reality is we don't cure most people with limited stage, small cell. It's a tough disease to cure, but we do cure some. And some of those that are cured have received PCI. And when you see the long-term survival, long-term cancer control years later, um, but at such a cost, the cognitive cost, the memory, the personality changes, um, a lot of my patients are really quite, different now, really dependent on others for for day-to-day -day living. And it's really tough to look at quality of life. And it's hard to reflect in these studies because the impact of PCI in terms of its toxicity is much later. And so if you're fortunate enough to be a longer-term survival, um, that's when you'll unfortunately see some of these toxicities, which I think are really troubling, really tough. Um, I have a, a discussion with each patient and for extensive stage, I can't remember the last time we've done PCI. Um, it wasn't, it was after really the, the ASCO oral presentation, which a few years before the publication and for a limited stage, we have a discussion and I have had a handful that really wanted to proceed with you know, PCI and, and I refer, uh, but most have agreed that, that MRI surveillance really is preferred to be clear, Rebecca, I do refer them to my radiation oncologist. We have a good working relationship and have that discussion. And my radiation oncologist, frankly, feels the same way I do that in this disease, um, I think there's a, a, an increasingly vanishing role for, for PCI, but we'll have some prospective data uh, emerging. Uh, thoracic radiation is something I'm still not sure about. The use in the US is uh, you know, very center specific, but overall not frequently used. I think in Europe, it's still used quite a bit. Um, do, do the two of you use thoracic radiation for extensive stage small cell? When I was in Manchester, we referred every patient for thoracic radiotherapy and PCI. Um, now that I've moved back home, I think there has been a sh shift in my practice. Um, certainly I recommend patients have MRI surveillance and send them to radiation oncologists to have a discussion. And I think that does come from resourcing as well, have better access to MRI availability. Um, and with thoracic um, PCI, I guess being trying to be purist in Empower 133 and Caspian, it wasn't mandated. And I think we're in an, a newer era of um, small cell treatment. 
So no, it's not. Yeah, similarly, I'm a purist uh, because it was not allowed uh, in both of the studies. I tend not to recommend thoracic radiation either. So it sounds like we all uh, do very similar things across the, the world, which is good to see. Yeah, there, there will be a trial. In the US, there's an NRG trial, LU007. It's the Raptor trial. And that's looking at consolidated radiation after Empower 133. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll see some of those data come out and see if we can make data even better. But um, you know, I, th- I view the, the Empower 133 with the tesalizumab, the Caspian with Durvalumab as kind of starting blocks. These are big advances. But I think really building on those with new combinations, with uh, additional agents will be that next step to try to further improve that. And maybe um, as concluding remarks, um, Stephen, what do you see as the most uh, promising uh, therapies that um, are coming up uh, that we should be watching out for in the space of small cell? Well, for limited stage, I think combining immunotherapy with radiation is really a, a no-brainer. I think that's an easy target, right? We've seen immunotherapy after chemo rads for stage three non-small cell in the Pacific regimen improve PFS, improve overall survival. I think we'll see similar efficacy, similar improvements with limited stage after chemo radiation. And so the um, the, the Adriatic study, uh, which is really looking at uh, Dervalimab and uh, another NRG1, uh, NRGLU005 study, that's an NCI study, looking at a tezolizumab, some slight differences in the study, but really adding immunotherapy to limited stage with a chemo radiation backbone, I think that'll be a major advance. In extensive stage, some approaches are to go bigger, and there's a, a phase three trial, uh, the Skyscraper 2 study that's looking at adding uh, a TIGIT molecule, anti-TIGIT drug called tirigolumab, um, which showed a lot of efficacy in the Cityscape studies, um, improving response rate, especially in that pdl one high group. Um, that has fast-track designation for non-small cell. It's being studied in small cell, uh, the study is carboatope atezo plus or minus tirigolumab. And we'll see if adding another immunomodulator will help deliver more immune-mediated antitumor responses to more people. But I think behind the scenes, what we need to do is get a little smaller, is develop these biomarkers to deliver drugs where they're much more likely to work and in areas where they're not going to work, uh, in, in areas where immunotherapy really is going to be ineffective to perhaps steer those patients to different strategies PARP inhibition, aurora kinase, uh, or even better to understand why immunotherapy doesn't work and then develop strategies to overcome those barriers. So the immediate impact I think will be in these bigger studies, sort of empirically adding things on. But 10 years from now, my hope is that they're much smaller studies really focused on these individual subsets and and specific uh, types of small cell lung cancer. I think that's hopefully where the future goes. It's just gonna be challenging to, to get there. Great, thank you. So I think that about wraps it up for our podcast tonight. Um, thank you very much, Stephen Cow and Stephen Liu for joining me. I think overall there's been some really promising advances in small cell lung cancer, clearly a lot more work to do, which we look forward to seeing in the future. Thank you.